0: Thanks, Ash. Uh, good evening and welcome to UniChurch. I want to add my welcome to Mings. Uh, my name's Rowan. If you don't know me, uh, so glad you've come along So we get to open up this great passage of what God has to say to us. It might seem crazy what I'm about to say. Sunshine's here. You can take a break. I'm a hot air balloon that could go into space with the air like I don't care, baby, by the way, because I'm Have you got any idea what I'm talking about? Let me help you out a bit. Here's something on the screen. Up along if you feel like a room without a roof. Right, they're great lyrics, aren't they? Look at them. Well done, Lachlan. Well done. Uh, it's a great song. Pharrell Williams is his name. Hey, say it right? I got corrected this morning when I said his name. I called him Feral. Maybe that's because I'm an Australian. See, happiness seems to be the single biggest drive behind the choices that we make and the paths that we take. We're all after what makes us happy in life. We live in a world where everything is relative and happiness has become the universal goal. It's the thing that we live for, happiness. It's the feeling that we desire. It's the litmus test for life. You're really living if you're happy. This week we surveyed at the university here at Oweek and asked people this question, happiness is what? Dot, dot, dot. Let me show you some of the results that we had. Happiness is... of people said happiness was friends and family. Now, I don't know if you've met my family. Sometimes they're great. Uh, Sometimes they're not so great. I don't know what family's like for you, but it's great to see that uh, almost a third of people think friends and family bring happiness. Uh, 16% are after love. Love brings happiness. That may be true. That may be true. Uh, Having a purpose in life was 11%, closely followed by other. I don't know what that is, but I'd love to chat to those people. And here what other is, uh, helping others mixed with that was right there as well. Fun was only 8%. Interesting, wasn't it? Uh, Followed by then uh, knowing God, uh, then only found in Jesus, and then money. So if you're wondering what happiness is, and you're confused by a room without a roof, and you're looking for something that is more, maybe, maybe something that's the truth, Pharrell Williams helps us. He helps us to understand what happiness is. So let me ask you tonight, are you happy? Are you happy? Is that song that Williams sings, the, the soundtrack of your life, as you walk along the street, is it playing? As you came to UniChurch tonight, are you going like, yeah, I'm clapping along because I'm happy. Do you know when uh, Williams released that song, he released it with a 24-hour music video. First time in the world this has ever happened. And I kid you not, you can go to 24hoursofhappy.com. Don't do it now. right? 24hoursofhappy.com. Write it out. Check it out later. And you can see a 24-hour music video of that song playing consistently. It doesn't stop. It keeps going. And there's people dancing in the street. For 24 hours, it shows you the whole clock on the way around. Now, when I saw that, do you know what I thought? I was like, are you for real? (laughs) Yeah. I have four kids, I'm allowed to make dad jokes, all right? That, this is how it works. My question is, though, why do we need 24hoursofhappy.com? Is, is, is happiness so fickle and so temporary that we need to seek it by going to a website, by having a 24-hour website that's, that's accessible all the time so we can clap along if we feel like that's what we want to do? Is happiness so fickle? Today I want to show you a different version of happiness, a version that's much more stable, more sure than the fickle concept we often come up with and chase after. You'll see that there's nothing wrong with happiness, just how we try to obtain it and what we find it in. So when we pray together, as we look at God's word now, God would help us to see His view of life and what gives true happiness. Let's pray. Father God, as we have heard your word read tonight, as we now come to think through what you are saying to us through this man, Paul, we ask that we would see the world from your point of view. That you would show us where our views of what brings life and security fall short. And you would lift our eyes to the horizon of true hope, to see the purpose of life and what truly brings happiness. We pray tonight we might walk away having heard you speak, and having you change our lives. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, as Ming said over the last few weeks, we've been looking through this book of 2 Timothy. We've been walking through what Paul has to say to his young protege, Timothy, as he's giving him his last words before death. Kind of imagine what someone might say if, if they were kind of, bowing out soon and they're giving their last words to someone that their the young protege coming along what would you say you think of so many movie scenes where there's that moment by the bedside it's not by the bedside there's a there's a letter being written here but you can imagine you know and what most parents kind of say is look whatever you do in life just make sure you're what happy what we see here in this passage is that paul has a very different focus a different focus Happiness doesn't seem to be on Paul's mind front and center. He has something else in mind. So come with me. Look at verse 9. He says this, I suffer to the point of being bound like a criminal. Verse 10, I endure all things. That's not very happy. I don't know if you're like, yeah, today I'm looking forward to being put in prison. Like that's a good thing. I don't know. Maybe you haven't got much food and you're like, prison's a great alternative. I get fed there. I can hang out. It's warm and dry. Uh, Maybe not as well, but this was was a horrible prison. He was bound like a criminal. And this is what he chooses to pass on to his young protege. He says, I endure all things. You do not really see him walking down the street, kind of clapping his hands and talking about a room without a roof, do you? You see him passing on at this moment the reality of life. Why is that? Happiness isn't Paul's focus right here someone else is and what's profound about Paul's focus in this book is that by removing his fixation on the fleeting moments of happiness here and now and focusing his attention somewhere else a much greater and more enduring happiness and security and joy becomes his reality and it can be your reality too Even amidst great pain and suffering, being chained and bound like a criminal, enduring all things, Paul has a focus that keeps him going, that excites him, that gives him hope. You want to know where to find happiness that endures and perseveres, even when times are tough, when pain and suffering comes? Well, come with me to verse 8, because Paul makes it blatantly clear where we find this hope. Two Timothy chapter two verse eight. Keep your attention on Jesus Christ, as risen from the dead and descended from David. This is according to my gospel. If you've come along here tonight to check out the things of Jesus, and maybe you'd expect us to be talking about Jesus. You'd expect Christians to say something about Jesus. But it's my hope that you will see just how profound this statement is. So other from every other worldview and philosophy and religion that exists. Paul, as he speaks these words here, he says, this is according to my gospel. That word gospel just actually means news, kind of momentous news, great news, the type of news you'd expect, you know, when someone has a baby and you'd be like, hey, this is great, they had a baby, it's awesome, everyone's cheering, it's a boy, or it's a girl, or you know, sometimes they're sad because they got the the kind of the sex wrong and they really wanted a girl and they got a boy, but that does happen, happened to a friend of ours, took them a while to get used to it. This word gospel, it actually came up in this first century world when emperors would return home from a a war, from a battle. They'd come home and, and the trumpets would be blasting, the singers would be declaring the praise of the emperor's great victories. This was momentous news, the gospel that would come. Everyone would be dancing along the street, clapping their hands. They'd all be happy, right? Because they'd won. Paul's news, the thing that Timothy was to keep his attention on, the thing that made Paul kind of keep going through life, was this man called Jesus. The thing that captivated Paul was not the pursuit of happiness, but the person of Jesus. Paul tells us why. Keep your attention on Jesus Christ as risen from the dead, he says, and descended from David. This man, Paul, is convinced that Jesus died. Now, that's not a very big statement. I'm pretty convinced that everyone who lived 2,000 years ago is dead. Right that's kind of normal what we expect but he's convinced that death was not Jesus end that he rose from the dead that he conquered death that's the great claim of christianity that there is a real person within history who has beaten death who has conquered enemy's greatest foe we hate death death robs us of life just listen to shakespeare in his play macbeth i think he describes it so helpfully life is but a walking shadow A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then he's heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Death robs life of meaning, of happiness. Life is but an hour on the stage and then disappears according to Shakespeare. But if Jesus really rose from the dead, then the resurrection of Jesus means that there has been one. There has been one that death did not win over. There has been one who has turned the tides on death itself, who's turned death into a tale told by an idiot, for he has conquered it. If Jesus has risen from the dead, then death is not the end. That, that there is there is more. If Jesus rose from the dead, it changes what we fear. Death is conceived in our world and by ourselves as the worst possible end because it is our end. It's the end of happiness. It's the end of fun. It's the end of life. Death is the It's the end. But with Jesus, the claim is that death is not the end. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if death was not the end? The whole world and the way we frame it and what we live for and how we live is bound by death, isn't it? We plan how much we have and when we will retire and do, have we got enough to make us to death. But what if, what if there's more? What if death is not the end? The claim of Jesus is that death isn't the end. What exists is life after death. And the one who controls that life is Jesus. That's why Paul tells us he was descended from David. Now, we hear that line as descended from David. and We're like, what's that got to do with it? You know, he's just telling us what family line he's from. It seems a bit odd to us at first, but every Jewish person who ever heard this knew what it meant because the Jews knew that the descendant of David who would be king would be the one who would rule forever. There was a promise that was given way back in 2 Samuel 7. If you've been with us for a while, we looked at 2 Samuel last semester. You can grab those talks online. But in 2 Samuel 7, God told David that he wasn't going to build, David wasn't going to build a house for God. But that God would build a dynasty for David, that through his son, a son to come, his descendant, he would come, he would bring one who would rule on God's throne forever, a forever king. The Jews took that concept and knew that as the Messiah, the promised king who would come and rule forever. When Jesus says, sorry, when Paul says that Jesus rose from the dead, and he said he was a descendant of David, he's saying that Jesus is this promised king. That meant that the resurrection was not some random resuscitation. It wasn't some guy that kind of had a stroke, had a heart attack, had a few flatline moments and then popped back to life. But this resurrection was the resurrection of the everlasting King. Listen to the words of the angel that appeared to Mary at Jesus' birth. Luke chapter 1 verse 31. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. This is the king who will rule life after death. This is the one who will rule forever. This kingdom is what will exist after you and I die. Jesus has risen from the dead. Paul is saying he is God's everlasting king. Paul's saying, This is the focus of my life. Timothy, this is what must keep your attention. Jesus has died and risen. The promised king has come who will rule forever. Death has been defeated. Life is on offer. This is my momentous news. Paul is amazed by it. It keeps him captivated in all that he does. In our pursuit of happiness, we make this life our bounds. We let death limit the stage on which life is played out. We think about only the here and the now, and death is the end of happiness. But if death is not the end, if there is a far greater stage than we ever imagined in front of us, eternity, imagine that, life that goes on and on forever. Then that shapes what happiness is. That shapes what life is about. This stage is where Jesus will rule forever. One of Jesus' followers, John, describes what that eternity will look like, what it will be like when God is ruling in his kingdom. He describes it in Revelation 21. You can check it out later, but he says there's, there's no more mourning or crying or pain. Imagine that. Life without broken relationships without evil from me or from others. No more half-baked plans, no more unrealized hopes, no more letdowns or expectations that aren't met, but a life that is in right relationship with God and with others. No more evil, but good. That is what is on offer. That's what has got Paul's focus. That is what drives this man. The real events of history, Jesus died and rose again as the promised king ensures there will be life forever. So Timothy, he says, remember Jesus. Keep your attention on him. Focus on him. Don't get distracted. Don't look to the sides. Remember what he has done. Risen from the dead. Descendant of David. He's alive. His kingdom won't end. No matter what happens to you, no matter what trials you face, do not be afraid. Jesus is the king. That's why Paul suffers. He suffers because his message isn't the message of happiness here and now. He comes with a different message, a far deeper message. Have a look at verse 9. I suffer for it to the point of being bound like a criminal, but God's message is not bound. This is why I endure all things the elect what makes paul tick why does he go through these things because he has a very different message his message is not ease and comfort now but suffer now for an even greater happiness in the future and an even greater happiness now knowing your purpose in life this news is so great that paul is willing to suffer he's willing to be bound to the point of being like a criminal this is no like, oh, you know, just a walk in the park, a bit of a hard time for this guy. He's in pain. He's chained in a prison, accused of being a criminal. This is not some form of honorable suffering. that The world kind of sits back and goes, oh, that poor guy, you know, look at what he suffered for the good of humanity. No one says that to him. No one says, oh, look at the advances that he made in, in, in thinking and helping people to think through life, lived out right, or, or, or in morals. No one stands back and says, look at Paul. Paul, he did such a good thing going through this suffering. Everyone says, Paul, you should be in prison. You're evil. You're speaking of life after death. You're speaking of things that aren't the emperor of our age, the ruler of our age. The world around hated him because they claimed that there was a God who was in control over all of us. Paul was put in prison because people saw what he was saying as evil. He suffered. And that is why he tells Timothy to keep his focus on the truth. Keep his focus on what Jesus has done. Because while he may be bound, God's message is not bound. The power of the Christian faith... Lots of people come along and they think the well, Christian faith is powerful because it has good morals. Well, it's true; there are great morals. Our world is based on the Judeo-cis- Judeo-Christian, thank you, system of, of, of justice. Right? What happened there? It's a glitch in the system. Um, our world is based on that. There are good morals to be had, but Christianity is far more than just good morals. Now, some people think that Christianity is about what gives me a great life experience now. Christianity just kind of helps me through life, gives me a crutch to stand on, that it's something that kind of just gets you through and gives you hope. It's far more than that. Some people think Christianity is about powerful speakers who have compelling messages that capture our minds and motivate us to live. Others think Christianity is about academic brains who are so grounded in history that they're able to explain these truths in an intricate way and throughout the centuries... There have definitely been powerful preachers. There have definitely been people who've been affected by this message. There have definitely been academics, like people like John Lennox, you know, who is an Oxford professor, who hold to this truth and defend it. But the power of the Christian faith is none of those things. It is the message, the news that Paul spoke of earlier. It is the news of what Jesus. Has done that news is phenomenally powerful because it's grounded in history and speaks of our future. In the movie Braveheart, William Wallace stand stood on a hill and cried out to his men. Remember the cry? They can take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. Right. How many of you have seen Braveheart? Shelf hands. Oh, there's some catching up for people to do. There's a, there's a firm hand up the back. Well done. Great movie to watch. Uh, Mel Gibson. Great guy. Uh, Is he Australian or is he a Kiwi? Yeah, I think there's a mixture there. It's Russell Crowe we gave back to the Kiwis, not Mel Gibson. (laughs) William Wallace says, you can take our lives, but you can never take our freedom. Paul says, you can chain me up, but God's word is never chained. You can do what you want with me, but God's word is not bound, for the message is true and it goes out. This is the news that gives life. It's grounded in history. It's centered on the historical facts of the life of Jesus and his resurrection. It's the most published book in human history. Now, there's a fulfillment of that word. But this letter would be part of the most published book in human history. God's word is not bound. And in Romans 1, Paul says it is his power for salvation. The power of the creator of the universe is found in News. That we may be forgiven that jesus has died in our place that he's risen again and that he's offered us life over a hundred years ago a man approached one of the greatest preachers this world has ever seen uh, the preacher was charles spurgeon a baptist preacher in fact spurgeon's son um, came to new zealand and, and started the baptist tabernacle in auckland uh, so there's kind of a link there if you want to check that out in your history thomas uh, but spurgeon was this brilliant preacher Hundreds of thousands of people put their life into Jesus' hands through his preaching. And this man came up to him, so it said one day, and says, Mr. Spurgeon, Mr. Spurgeon, how do you defend the Bible? This man had seen the power of his teaching and had heard some of the critiques of Christianity and, and critiques of the Bible, and he wanted to defend it. He wanted to know how to defend this truth that he had. And apparently Spurgeon looked up with a smile and he said this, You defend the Bible... The same way you defend a lion, you don't defend a lion. You let it out of its cage. See, the word of God is powerful. It doesn't need defending. Imagine the ludicrousy of saying, oh yes, we need to gather an army together to defend this lion. Just let the lion out. Have you not seen the power of a lion? It doesn't need defending. So too this word. Paul says, let this word ring out, Timothy, no matter what they do to you, because Jesus died and rose again. He is the descendant of David. and As people hear this news, God is powerful and active and brings them to know him. It's the message about Jesus that makes Paul confident in life and in all that he's doing. And that's why Paul endures all things for the elect. So this message, this word may go out Just have a look with me at the effect of this message in verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 10. This is why I endure all things for the elect, so that they also might obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Built into this news is the reality that we need saving. No one likes hearing that. We love hearing that we are saved. And Paul is saying that with this news comes the news that we have salvation. In other words, that our relationship with God has been fixed. Now, for some of you, you'll be going, well, I didn't know my relationship with God was even broken. You know, I'm kind of like, well, what says that there is an issue, you know, with me and God? I haven't really ever had much to do with Him. And that's exactly the point. <laughs> the moment we ignore the one who made us, The moment we think we can live our life without Him, without reference to Him, is kind of like growing up and saying to your mum and dad, oh, no offence, but I want nothing to do with you. I'm not going to treat you as my parents. No offence. But that's phenomenally offensive. They made you. God has made us and created us to be in relationship with Him. Every single person in this room, myself included, have turned our backs on God. We haven't treated Him as we should. We don't even live up to our own expectations of ourselves, let alone God's. We need that relationship to be restored. And this message that Paul speaks of, speaks of the restoration of that relationship. That Jesus has come and died in our place and offered us salvation, forgiveness, life forever. And not only that, he says, they may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, with eternal glory. Now, glory is kind of a funny word. What is glory? If you go up to someone and say, show me glory, what is that? How do you you show what glory is? I was was trying to think through it this week. I'm trying to think, what is the best representation of glory? I was reminded of of when the America's Cup team came back to Auckland and they had like a fanfare and there's like people coming and there's supposed to be fireworks, but it rained. And, you know, at at those moments where we celebrate how great this is, these guys represented New Zealand. They are awesome we love them and we want to celebrate that and i don't know if any of you went or if you've ever been when an olympic team comes back from the olympics and they celebrate their gold medals and there's that great kind of fanfare and people are on the streets and there's kind of party poppers and you know what do you call the throwy things Streamers, thank you, well done. Uh, it's, the, and though, you know, it's this time of celebrating and going, wow. And you look at the people who are on the, on the float going past, that people are going, look at these people who have represented us. And you're like, wow. It's like this moment. I don't know how you describe it apart from that. The glory here, this eternal glory that Paul is speaking of, is like that, but times a hundred, a 1, thousand. Imagine you got all of the opening ceremonies of the Olympic Games that have ever been and all the closing ceremonies of the Olympic Games and every other ticket tape parade that happened on every city in every country across the face of the earth. And you gather them together in one big parade where all these people came and everyone was like celebrating. And you kind of put celebration upon celebration with fireworks. And imagine that. Imagine how big it would be. Imagine being there. Imagine being in the center of that. Well, the eternal glory Paul speaks about is the glory that God deserves when people see who He is and what He's done. And that puts every opening and closing ceremony ever had and every ticker tape parade we've ever been to, to shame compared to what will happen on that day. When people see God for who He is, I don't even know if we'll be able to look at Him because of the brightness and the brilliance of what He has done. But here's the thing. Paul says that we might obtain salvation with eternal glory. That glory will be ours too. If you trust in Jesus, you won't just be on the sidelines cheering, you'll be there alongside him. For we are called co-heirs with Christ if you trust in Jesus. This promise of salvation takes those who deserve death and judgment and separation from God's goodness forever and says, I'm going to place you next to God the Son and treat you with the glory that he deserves on that final day. How amazing will that be? But those things, Paul says, are only found in Jesus. Do you see that in the middle? So that they might obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, with eternal glory. So many people chase after happiness in so many different areas of life. We chase after satisfaction and fulfillment and security. But Paul says it is only found in one place. Jesus He is the only one who has died in your place. He's the only one who has come and offered you life forever. He's the only one who could fix your relationship with God. You can't go anywhere else for this. But Paul applies that salvation and glory through Jesus Christ to a group of people called the elect. If you've been part of Christian circles for a while... Uh, You would have been in a group somewhere sometime when there's been just normal questions going through the passage and then some person out of nowhere just goes, oh, but what about predestination? Have you ever been there? And you know, like everyone kind of does this like, (laughs) oh, it's like that guy, what is is the predestination? Every group has a predestination guy or girl, right? You're probably, you know, probably nudging one another now and going, that's you. (laughs) It's this question of like, who is in control? Is God in control? Does He choose who comes into His kingdom, or do we choose? Now, this picture here of the elect, it means those God has elected. God has chosen. The ones to whom salvation and eternal glory apply through Christ Jesus are those that God has chosen. You're going to see very clearly here that salvation is God's thing, not ours. He has chosen those who will come to Him. it has got great confidence. It means that His people cannot fail. Because God has chosen them. He chose them before the beginning of time. And we don't know who they are. The the Bible doesn't tell us, go around and work out who the elect are. There's no special sign on people's foreheads or, you know, tattoo inside their belly button. You can't go around and be like, are you the elect? (laughs) No. It would just be awkward. Um, But, you know, there's no kind of outward sign of going who the elect are. But Paul tells Timothy to endure all things, no matter what. So that those God has chosen can come to Him. Salvation is God's thing from start to end. But recognize that we are called to do all we can to see this unchained message go out. The way Paul presents this truth here is, I think, so helpful. It protects us from two mistakes two mistakes we can make when we think about God pre choosing and predestining and electing some. The first mistake is this. Some people say that if there are people who are chosen, we don't need to risk our lives to get them saved. right? If God's chosen them, why do I need to spend all my time and energy going and telling people about Jesus? If God's chosen them already, He's going to bring them in. But you can't hold that view from this passage. It's wrong. Paul says we endure everything for the sake of the elect so that they might obtain salvation. The certainty that they're our elect ones. It doesn't make us stop risking our lives, but it gives us confidence that I'm not wasting my life by risking it for the gospel. Because God has those whom he's chosen from before all time who need to hear this news. And so we go out knowing that God will be faithful, that God will work his salvation through this message that is unchained and bring people to recognize who Jesus is and what he's done. And my hunch is that that's exactly what's happened to many of you in this room tonight. You've gone out and someone has told you this news and you've seen that it bears truth to history and to your life and that jesus has done this and you are in and sure you made some decisions to trust jesus but you're like wow i suddenly get it god has brought you to see his great salvation because he chose you from before all time that through the work of others enduring all things you might now know jesus the second mistake that it protects us from is this. Some say that if, if Paul must preach and suffer and persuade lost people to believe, there can be no such thing as election, only human free will, right? If Paul's out there persuading people and enduring all things for the elect, then God can't really have chosen before all time, otherwise they'd just, they'd just happen, they just come. But that's wrong as well. My commitment to suffer for the gospel doesn't mean that no one is chosen, Paul is saying that his commitment to suffer for the gospel means that God has chosen me to be the instrument of salvation. He's chosen those who trust in Jesus to speak this word to be instruments to others. So don't ever think that God's election makes your witness or your prayer superfluous. It's essential. That's what this verse is saying. God is in control. He's bringing people into his kingdom and he uses us as instruments So endure all things that people might know this truth. Well, as Paul urges Timothy to endure like he has done, he grounds his endurance and his hope in a profound past, profound past. Verse 11, he says this, This saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. You can imagine Paul passing this on. Timothy, this is trustworthy. This is what you need to depend on. If you have died with Christ, we will also live with Him. If we trust that Jesus' death was in our place, if we trust Jesus and we put our life in His hands, then Paul says that Jesus' death was your death. And again, I think this is a profound concept. What Paul is saying is that when Jesus died 2,000 years ago, He faced what you and I deserve. And if you've trusted him, if your life is in his hands, then the death that you and I deserve has already been died. Jesus died our death for us on a cross. He faced the penalty of God for our turning our backs on him. And because of that, we can be sure we will live because our death has already been done. Imagine for a moment that uh, you're about to go through some terrible ordeal. There's something horrible in life that's coming up and And you kind of bump into someone who's been through that very same thing. They've experienced what it feels like. And you have this kind of great time of comfort chatting together about the experience so far and what happened to them next. It's such a helpful time talking to someone who knows what it's been like. Let's imagine for a moment you had the option to choose to speak to someone who'd been through what you were about to go through beforehand or to speak to someone who would go through what you're about to go through for you. What would you prefer? Someone who can give you some advice on how to get through it or someone who would go through it for you on your behalf? Surely it's a second, right? Maybe you're like, well, I don't want them to go through it again. but, But surely if someone could do it for us. Well, here, Jesus didn't just face death so as to merely be able to sympathize with us. I know what it's like. I've been there. He experienced the judgment of God for the things we have done. He died our death. So complete and exhaustive was that death in our place that Paul can say, if we trust in Jesus, we've already been buried with him. He says it in Romans 6, 4. Check it out later. Our death is his death. It's already happened. This is trustworthy. This is what's happened. So we might live with him. It also gives us a profound future. A profound future. Look at verse 12. If we endure... We will also reign with him. Paul's saying here, the way that we might reign with Christ, share in that day of glory when Jesus comes back and all things are seen as they are, and death is no longer victorious and we're alongside him, is to endure, is to keep trusting Jesus. Is to keep saying, I think you're the one who's died in my place. I think you're the one who needs to call the shots in my life. I'm going to trust you rather than me. I'm not going to seek happiness on my own. I'm going to seek what you have given, for you've given me everything, life forever. How do we know we will rise? How do we know if we are part of those that God has chosen? Well, there's only one real sign endurance. If we keep trusting Jesus, the mark of those in Christ is endurance. Paul tells Timothy this to say, keep enduring. Keep going through this, for the future hope is amazing. But Paul's trustworthy saying comes with a great warning, a very great warning. Look at verse 12. If we deny him, he will deny us. The hope Paul talks about here is only found in Jesus. If you deny Jesus, if you reject who He is, if you say, look, I don't think He is who He claims to be, if you walk away from Him, then you don't get to share in the benefits that He brings. If you live for anything or anyone else other than Him, Paul says He will deny us. And so He should. If we reject Him, why should He come back? We can't go on in this life thinking that we don't need Jesus. This is no kind of scaremongering tactic. This is Paul saying, keep trusting him. Keep your attention on Christ. Look at what he has done for you. Your death has been paid for. Your future is secure. Keep trusting Jesus. That is what life is about. Keep your eyes fixed on the prize, Timothy. It's a real warning. Those that deserted Paul in Asia, all of them, they left his message and walked away from salvation." There's a reason that Paul says, keep your attention on Jesus Christ. There's a reason that we as a church here at UniChurch keep talking about being captivated by who Jesus is and what he's done. We must fix our eyes on this king who has come and died in our place. And that's that there are so many other things to capture our attention. The world is full of them. There are people whose job it is to advertise to us. I think some of you are probably studying marketing. You're working out, how do I capture people's attention with something else? And sometimes those things are good things. Um, I used to work for a media marketing company. I'm involved in those sort of things. And sometimes we're trying to help people recognize, look, this brand of tractor is the best brand of tractor. Trust me, that's great. Okay? But other times we're trying to say, you know what, you need more. You need a better tractor. You need a better this. You need a better that. Your life would be so much more secure and happy if you had, what word just popped into your head? What thing that if you had it would make your life so much more secure, so much more pleasurable, so much more happy? What is it that is likely to capture your attention? I want you to think for a moment and maybe write down what comes into your head. I'll give you about twenty seconds. What is it at the moment that is fighting to capture your attention other than Jesus? I'll give you twenty seconds. Paul here gets us to consider what is drawing our focus away from Jesus. What is it for you? Where are you tempted to walk away from the hope of eternal life? (laughs) When you say it like that, it sounds so stupid, doesn't it? What could be so important that you're willing to trade the next 30, 40, 50, 80 years for eternity? Sounds so dumb. Be like saying, just, "You know, what, I want to trade this, this moment of pleasure in the next three minutes for the rest of a life in prison." Who wants to do that? We go. That's stupid. That's just not long term thinking. That's not happiness and pleasure. Who would trade eternity if death is not the end and life keeps going on? Then this life is but a blip compared to what is to come. Paul ends this truth, this section, with news about God that is so great. He speaks of the faithful God. Look at verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, people kind of differ here on on what this verse says. Some say, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That that means that will be denied by him and sent away. But I think in the way he's ending, what he's actually saying is that if we stumble, if, if we fail to trust at a point, not by denying Christ, not by saying, look, I don't need him. But as we stumble, as we walk away for a time and then realize, what am I doing? I need to trust him. But God is faithful, that he loves you, that he sent his son to die in your place. That momentary drop in trust, that stumble in life, God is faithful and He wants to bring us back. He wants to bring you back, to trust Him. He knows we struggle. He knows it's hard. That's why Paul sends this message to Timothy. And this is no reason for laziness. We can't kind of sit back and go, oh sweet, God will bring me in in the end anyway. No. You think in that way, you deny Him, He will deny you. But this is a great reason for thankfulness, for endurance, for encouragement that God is, that God is keeping us in His salvation and hope. Have you stumbled? Have you been away from Jesus for a little or a lot? Are you finding that in your life there are other things that sometimes win in the battle between who's going to get your focus, God or Satan, the pleasures of this world or the pleasures of the true and living God? And tonight, hear this message, happiness, True happiness through suffering and trial and pain is found not in getting satisfaction here and now, but in trusting the God who's offered you eternity. Sharing in eternal glory, salvation, forgiveness from our sins. That is where it is found. Come back to Jesus. C.S. Lewis sums it up brilliantly in his book, The Weight of Glory. Lewis, who wrote the Narnia series, says this, If we consider the unblushing promises of God and the staggering nature of the rewards God has promised to us in His Word, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition When infinite joy is offered to us, and like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because it cannot imagine what is meant by the offer at a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Friends, happiness, purpose in life, hope, is found not in satisfaction right here and now with the things that are in front of us, but recognizing that life goes beyond death and recognizing that Jesus has bought us and has saved us and is offering us life forever. When you recognize that truth, when you see what is being offered, you are able to trust him. Even when life is hard, in fact, you are able to endure all things so that people might hear this news of who Jesus is and what he's done. What is it that's vying for your attention? What is it that's taking your focus off Jesus? Is it so important that you're willing to trade eternity for it? Let's pray that we might keep our eyes focused on Jesus Christ, descendant of David, the one who has died in our place, the one who has offered us a position in his kingdom forever. And so speak that truth to the world around us. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you so much that you have not treated us as we deserve. That you've not let us just run to our own views of happiness. You've not let us be satisfied with the things that are just in front of us, but have shown us a picture tonight of how great your promises are. Lord, we long to see that day when Jesus comes back and all things are as they should be. We long to be part of that day and share in that eternal glory, not just for our own sake, but that you might be seen for who you are. And so we ask that you would keep our attention on your son, Jesus. For those of us, Lord, that are feeling like we're being pulled to look at other places and other areas for happiness and satisfaction in life, Lord, help us to see where we are selling ourselves short. Help us to see where we are rebelling against you. And Father, we pray that you would make this truth that Paul has said, your word tonight, so large and bright and strong that we will be captivated like a moth is to light, to live for you. Send us out, Lord. Use us in whatever way you see fit so that more people might know you and the hope that you have offered. And Lord, we ask for those of us that are here tonight that want in, want to come back or come to you, that you would draw us through the hope of the message you've given us to put our life in Jesus' hands and to serve him as our king. We pray this in his great name. Amen.